Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Biocom Chatability. Dawn, I think this is absolutely a first. We have six of us today that are all going to try to talk on this podcast. It's definitely a first. I think, yeah, yeah, it's uh, coordinating this effort will be <laughs> yeah. our biggest challenge. Um, I'm thinking so. you're going to hide in the background and not say much at all as you like. To I will. Do I will. On these t- yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, <laughs> I might even, you know turn our, our my, my camera off so you can't see me hiding. I'll just crawl underneath my desk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, You're going to multitask. That anybody else, else can see the fact that we have cameras on, but that's okay. You know, yeah, it's part of the coordination effort or lack thereof. So anyways. <laughs> well, this is going to be an interesting episode. This is going to be fun. We have with us today four of our NAMSA study directors, and we thought it'd be really interesting to do an episode about GLP and these study directors are what I'm calling QB1 of GLP. It is fall. It is football season. And I'm rewatching uh, Friday Night Lights from the beginning. So <laughs> QB1 is top of mind with me right now. So anyway, we have the QB1 of GLP with us today, four of them. So four of our NAMSA study directors, William Adamiak, Allison Schaefer, Brandon Hanlon, and Teresa Ford Welves. Thanks you all for joining us. I know it's hard for y'all to talk at one time. Hi. I bet we're excited Hello. to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Welcome. Well, this is good. You know, we haven't done, I don't think done, we haven't really talked about GLP much in biocompatibility. And it's extremely important, right? When we talk about biocompatibility, especially when you're performing biocompatibility testing to be submitted to uh, the regulators, whether it's U.S., Europe, China, Japan, GLP is front and center. So um, if one of y'all would want to maybe give us an overview of what GLP is. I know Allison, I think, was studying the standards or the guidance just a little bit ago. Indeed. <laughs> so <laughs> give, us a, give us an overview of, of GLP and, and what it does. Maybe, I don't even know. Don, I know, knows a lot of the history, but uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Right. So uh, GLPs, as we refer to them here in study director land, uh, stands for good laboratory practice. And we have uh, federal regulations that we follow, the 21 CFR Part 58. So we all have these handy guidelines um, that describe the role of study director and the purpose of what GLP is for, that it's for conducting non-clinical lab studies that support applications and submissions to notified bodies with the intent that these regulations assure quality integrity of studies that are being submitted to those notified bodies. Right. Yeah. So, and I know some of the history, Don, there was, you know, I I think there was some falsification way back in the years that brought GLP to the forefront, correct? Yeah. I mean, you can read about some war stories of, uh, of, of why these things exist. And I, you know, just as Allison was saying, you know, protecting the integrity of the data, I think that's what will be revealed if you look back at the war stories of what was happening back in the day. And and keep in mind, when I say back in the day, we're talking pharmaceutical back in the day, not medical device back in the day. 
and and what GOP's... would be the day, Don, that you're done? <laughs> How far back is back in the day? Are we like the 30s of 1930s, 1940s? I forget that. I don't think it was that long ago. Oh, okay. I forget the exact decade. If you guys know, you know, let me know. But uh, I'm I'm getting too old to remember dates. <laughs> I, I was always terrible at dates. History was like my worst subject in terms of dates. I could give you a scientific name of a bird. Just oh, don't birds, ask birds, me birds. what day something happened. You know, so anyway. But okay, um, I won't ask you anymore. I did just see the woman, I, the woman at the FDA who actually blocked thalidomide from coming into the U.S. She just passed away today, which I think that was one of the things we talked about. I know in the history was the, the testing around thalidomide. Um, so I just thought it was really relevant. I saw that in the news this morning. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, when I mentioned, you know, in terms of like GLPs from pharma, you know, I, one of the things that we always talk about a lot of times when we're kind of talking about history of biocompatibility evaluation for medical devices is like all the stuff that medical devices adopt from pharmaceuticals. And right. so, you know, in that adoption type concept, everything doesn't work out or translate exactly as you would want it because we're using things that weren't just for medical devices and, you know, GLPs, I think just another occurrence of that, where there's some things, if you read again, if you're bored and pick up the <laughs> GLP regs and read through them. I mean, Sherry did call it exciting at the beginning of the podcast. Did I, did I? Uh, oh, that was an accident. You, Sorry. You, <laughs> you called the GLP regs exciting. You, you, you're down record as, as that. I'll have but that anyways, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, 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 uh, yeah, it, it focuses on, you know, things that don't work so well for medical devices right? entirely. So you kind of got to blur the lines a little bit to make it work out. And some of the most basic elements, I think, you know, from a GLP perspective, we see some customers even just asking, how do I address that? What do I do about that for my device? And but again, it's that's that history that kind of plays into it. Right. So when you know, I've made reference to the study directors being, you know, QB1. So one of you wise study directors, would you like to give me a little bit more information? Um, you know, the role of the study director in the GLP program? Sure. So uh, as you said, study directors, we, we're kind of the QB1 of the, the overall GLP program. And so what that really means, is we, we wear a lot of hats, both externally with our clients and customers, as well as internally, you know, with the labs, with marketing, with quoting, things like that. Uh, but as far as from a GLP perspective, we do very specific regulatory items that we oversee. Uh, so, for example, all testing that we oversee as a study director, it's our responsibility to make sure that we verify the data to make sure the testing was performed accurately. Uh, we also verify that we use the, the correct test system. Uh, so every endpoint that we, we test towards following the 10993 standard series has a certain test system that's called for when you're evaluating those different types of endpoints. So we have to make sure that we're using the correct test system. It's our job to generate and approve study protocols. Uh, so we're going to make sure that the, the laboratory followed those protocols. Were there any deviations that may have occurred? And as the GLP study director, it's our job to evaluate those deviations, address the impact. So was it impactful to your study? Or was it uh, what we call a minor deviation where we can still evaluate that endpoint and address that impact in our final report. Uh, another big part of our job is to ensure that all the study data is archived timely. Uh, so it's a very important part of the GLP concept and the GLP testing that once a GLP test wraps up and is completed, we need to get that to our archives 
to make sure that everything is accounted for, should that the FDA or any other regulatory body need to look at that study file, it's all accounted for and readily available. Finally, if there is any deviations or trends noted in testing, study directors have the ability to to kind of dive in and, and request corrective actions to make sure that the overall product that we're offering our clients and the services that we're offering our clients are of top quality. So overall, we wear, we wear a lot of hats and that's part of the excitement of the role. Uh, it's also part of the challenge of the role. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I recall many times over the years at NAMSA, you know, being involved with discussions with a study director and a customer on various items. And, you know, you mentioned protocol development. And I certainly remember long conversations about protocol development, certain devices that, you know, just aren't simple, right? Nothing about testing devices is simple when you have to make an extract out of a piece of plastic. But there's a lot of complexity to that development. And you guys have that legal responsibility, the way I understand it, from the GLPs, right? Yeah, so we essentially, any, any reports or protocols that the study director signs from a GLP standpoint, we essentially own that protocol and we're solely responsible for defending those evaluations. Right, right. Yeah, no, no small feat there. I mean, that's why you guys are QB1. I think it's a perfect title. I mean, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Um, anyway, <laughs> so thanks for that. that. That definitely is a great, you know, great description of what you all do on a daily basis. And I guess, you know, for me, I don't know how many kids are aspiring to grow up to be a study director, a GLP study director. I don't remember it being on the career choice wall or anything, but, you know, how do you, how does, how does one make a kind of that career decision or how do you hear about even a role of being a study director? It seems obviously if you're in this business, you might know what a study director is, but if you're not, what is that decision like? Or how do you get drawn to something like this? Control? Do you like the control? No, I, <laughs> I I think that we're all yeah of some sort of type A personality that we like to drive things. But uh, I I think like you said, not a lot of people know about this industry. Or I think a lot uh, in talking to a lot of people, I've been here at NAMSA oh over fifteen years now, and in talking with people, you know, a lot of us take a circuitous route to get here. You know, I wanted to be a zookeeper, uh, so. <laughs> Um, after I got my bachelor's degree, and but then I went back to school and I got uh, my vet tech license because I was interested in veterinary medicine. And that's actually what brought me to NAMSA. I started in our in vivo lab as a surgical tech. Okay. And, um, you know, because I didn't want to work in a clinic. So what else could I do with my education? Um, and and I that was my introduction to this industry. And I think that um, it's very helpful um, in a study director role to have had previous lab experience, um, especially GLP. But I mean, it's not completely necessary. So I moved from being a surgical tech and I said, okay, what's what's interesting next? Uh, I think I want to do that study director thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I actually mentored with uh, Laura Tassi, our principal study director, and and that got me ready to move into this role as much as you could get ready. Uh, <laughs> sure. And then I, I've been study directing for nine years then. So I, I don't think that to be a study director, you have had to be a study director elsewhere. You utilize the experience uh, that you already have in your education, obviously. And uh, like I said, getting getting into a, a lab role is certainly very helpful to 
to coming in to study director. Um, but it, it, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be, I think, a, um, a medical device lab. Um, if you've worked right. in a regulated field before, then, then you already understand a lot about the types of rules that we have to follow. And then, you know, we can, we can teach you how to study direct at NAMSA. <laughs> right. Excellent. Which, you know, we've all learned. Which of all, yeah, yeah. Don, I know you were a study director. Did you start out as a study director? I mean, can you remember yeah. back in the, this would be back in the day as well. <laughs> Not that many days ago. Not that, that many days. It was, it, was, it was years ago, 20 plus years ago. 20 but. plus years ago. Did you start as a study uh, director? No, I didn't. I, I started in uh, the lab and then uh, supervised and then became a study director. So again, I, which I think is, unless you know you have experience outside of NAM, so I think it, that kind of path in general, like Teresa was describing, is pretty common to where you, you know, you get involved, you get an understanding of, especially within NAMSA, of what you know, how NAMSA operates, what we do, the evaluation of medical devices involves, and then you kind of, as you gain some level of experience with that, you know, you kind of build up into the, the role of study director, because, I mean, let's be honest, it, it's one of the more important jobs within sure. NASA's walls in terms of, of the testing that we do. So you don't want to take it lightly and just say, well, anybody can be a study director because not everybody's made out to be a study director. There's there's yeah. a lot of you have to enjoy responsibility in among other things in order to be a study director. Yeah. With great responsibility comes, what is that saying? Oh, I'm going to blank on it. It's too early for me this morning. Yeah, it's, it's too early. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just great responsibility. Let's put it that way. Okay, so it seems like there's probably a lot of, uh, a variety of different things that you get to um, experience as a study director. So what's exciting about being a study director? What do you like best? Any, any crazy stories you can share? Don, I think you probably have old stories. Who wants to tell me how much they love it and what's exciting about it? <laughs> I don't know if I have any crazy stories. I probably do. Um, not off the top of my head, though. But, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about study directing is that it's, it's neat, to, neat to see medical devices from across multiple different companies mm -hmm. come in. You know, there, there's such a great variety of medical devices and they don't always fall into, you know, your cookie cutter mold for testing. Um, right. So it, it really requires us to stay on our toes and constantly grow and, and develop our skills. And it's neat to also be able to see over the years, you know, the trends in the types of devices that come in, the, the complexity in the devices that we see that are being developed and to get to work on them, you know, prior to them clearing the market, you know, we get to see a lot of things that come through before anybody even knows they exist, um, which is really neat. So I think it can also be, be something that's frustrating, you know, is, is because we we, we learn a certain thing and we learn everything we, we can about a test method. And, and then we get a new device that we've never seen before. And we go, uh Oh, uh, what yep. do we do with this guy? You know, and that's when, that's when you call someone like Don Pohl, who, you know, who, who <laughs> has done this for a very long time and has seen back a lot in of the day. things come through back in the day. But yeah, no, things, things are moving forward very, very fast and it, it's difficult. Um, but, but when we succeed, it's also very rewarding to be part of that. I think, you know, what personally for me, what, what I really like about being a study director is, you know, like Brandon said, we, we wear a lot of hats. It's not something that anybody can really do. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, it, it requires a, an incredibly well-rounded individual. You, you need skills 
an eclectic variety of areas that most jobs don't typically require of you all at the same time. You know, there's the, you need to have good interpersonal and, and customer service skills because, you know, we're, we're in direct contact working with the sponsors of, of these studies. And we're in direct contact with the technicians in the lab, you know, who are conducting right. the, the studies. So we also need good uh, technical and scientific background to, to ensure the integrity of the studies that we're running. You know, we, we need to be, able, be effective communicators of that as well. You know, it's, we have to be able to translate those technical and scientific concepts to perhaps some people that have, have never heard of any of these. You know, I, I remember one of my very first sponsors you know, we were running the most common and simplest study that we've we run, which is the MEM elution cytotox test. And he got me on the phone and, and he said, okay, what, what is cytotoxicity? And so I said, <laughs> okay. So I pulled out my test method and started, you know, explaining to him. And, and then he would say, okay, uh, what is extraction? And, oh, yes. you know, that's, so that stuff, <laughs> so you, you don't realize that oftentimes who we're working for is, doesn't really have a grasp at all of, of what that is. So we have to be able to explain that as well. I would say that we also kind of need a, a sponge brain. You know, there's, you're, you're always learning something new in this job. You know, you might think that you've exhausted every possibility for a particular test method. You know, like Teresa Fordwells is a whiz when it comes to ocular studies. You know, she's done them for a long time, but I guarantee you that she would probably going to shake her head that she is learning something new when, when it comes to that all the time. So that's a really neat part of that for me personally, because, you know, I have a background in bioengineering, unlike a, a lot of the people who go into science. And that's what I learned most. That's what I, I loved most about that degree was that I had learned all aspects of science, you know, biology, chemistry, physics. I had to learn all aspects of engineering chemical, civil, mechanical, electrical, you know, mathematical applications, because our, our bodies, you know, they have um, parts that behave similar to various different subjects, but in no way is it comparable to, to just a single subject, you know, study. Right. So similarly, when we're directing these studies, you know, it, it, it keeps us, it requires us to put many of those skills to the tests. It helps us all to develop into better scientists to, to better people to, you know, develop multiple skills that opens up the doors for us to, to do almost any field of work, if you think about it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I, and I, I, you know, we've met before, but I didn't know you're a biomedical engineer. And I bet a lot of your, you relate to a lot of your customers, because I think a lot of, a lot of sponsors and medical device developers are biomedical engineers. And, yeah. and so that's a really unique relationship there, I would guess. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I love that part about our business that we get to see so many cool things. And, you know, it's sad when the ones that have these great ideas that don't quite make it, you know, that don't quite <laughs> get there, but it's exciting technology and you hope that someday somebody will perfect it and be able to to get it there. So I know I've seen that happen over my tenure in the device industry of how many devices that are just cool things that change the world. I remember previous to NAMSIDE, worked with a company where we we tested the very first AAA stent graft that could be, you know, not done surgically, put in through the femoral. And I was like, there's no way this thing's ever going to work. And now they're everywhere. So it's just that excitement about being on this side of the business, I think, for sure. So <laughs> that gets me thinking. So who else wants to share maybe their path of how they got to a study director and what other roles maybe a study director has, you know, in their future or how it works at NAMSA even. 
Sure. So I think I'm one of the only people that have, are external that came externally to NAMSA. You know, I went to school for forensic science and chemistry and got my, what I call my first big kid job um, doing <laughs> um, ag chemical research in a lab in Indianapolis. Okay. Um, from there, I moved over to doing uh, UPLC work for pharma, again, in Indianapolis, and kind of wanted, I like Teresa said, a bit, a bit type A and like to be organized and like to have some control and uh, was looking for an opportunity where I could, you know, grow that skill set, maybe do some project management, um, but also use the technical skills that I had kind of acquired through my education and my first two jobs outside of college. I, I'm from the area, so I was able to, you know, I had some familiarity with NAMSA's existence and applied and got back in here or came to NAMSA as a um, associate study director level um, when they were kicking off the, the chemical characterization program um, that was going to have study or study director oversight um, five right. years ago. So I kind of started here, left and came back and, you know, had some external experience before coming back to NAMSA, um, which really helped. And, you know, I've, I've gotten what I've wanted to do through this role at NAMSA. I've certainly grown my project management skills, you know, my communication skills. Um, and like Will said, you know, this, this role can be different every day. There's new challenges to learn every day. I also enjoy, you know, educating our clients on, you know, they might not be familiar with chemistry testing or chemical characterization testing. So, or they might, you know, be afraid of chemistry. And it's it's an enjoyable experience to kind of walk them through the process and let them know, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, why it's so complex, the challenges they might face, but let them know that, you know, we have experience in this and we can, you know, help escort them from point A to point B on their journey through testing. Yeah, that's that's really excellent. So are there things that like differ at NAMSA from like what you, I know you mentioned you went in other places, you know, things that differ in this kind of role than what you did in the ag role. I'm, I'm guessing this is a little more exciting, seeing all these devices right, versus right. Maybe ag chemicals. <laughs> um, and, you know, through the existence of the GLP portion of testing, like the testing I did previously wasn't GLP. The testing I do here, some of that is GLP, which gives me a lot more responsibility. So I, the, the involvement I have with the work I do here at NAMSA is a lot more than, I, than the work that I did you know, at my previous locations, which is nice because when you have that added responsibility and that level of ownership, you know, it really drives you to become the expert and, you know, dive into the test methodologies. And, you know, when you're taking ownership and taking responsibility of that, having the confidence in yourself, knowing that, you know, you've got the background and the training to to handle those studies appropriately. Right. So, as sometimes happens here, even though I give you guys maybe questions in advance, I always have another one that I come up with <laughs> while we're talking. So I don't know, maybe Brandon, this would be a, a good one. Uh, I'll put you on the spot. So obviously, uh, the folks listening are are going to be submitting testing to laboratories. They work with laboratories. They work with study directors. You know, what are some key things that is important to know when you're working with a laboratory with a study director for biocompatibility that... And I'm not saying necessarily helps you do your job better, but, you know, if you had the <clears throat> forum like you do right now to to tell sponsors and customers, what are some things to make their life easier when they're working with laboratories and study directors for GLP studies? I'm guessing not sure. sending samples in a baggie that just say 
sample X are probably a start. I've heard Don yeah, talk yeah. about that one before, but what are some other things? So, yeah, so the regs are, are very specific in what they require when we're doing this testing. So, you know, making sure that your your test article identification is is very clear, both on our NAMSA, uh, what we call our sample submission form, but also clearly labeled on your on your test articles, knowing your preparation. So, and we get that sponsors may not know how to prepare their samples for testing, but they should have some idea of what is considered patient contacting versus non-patient contacting, what, what's really involved and what we need to be, be including in the preparations. So making sure that they have a, a clear understanding of that perspective of their test article. Because uh, right. from, a, from a study director's perspective, we can certainly guide them. But on any given day, we might have 60 to 70 sponsors that we're working with. So we see a lot of devices come through. So we have a, a good grasp of how we should test, let's for say, a, a catheter or a, a heart valve. But when it comes to specific packaging or specific sponsor-provided prep instructions, we really lean on our sponsors to help us with that. Then, you know, upfront test article requirements, we try to be pretty clear with that with our with our quoting. And, and sponsor or study directors can certainly help with that, but making sure that when you submit testing, every now and then we do run into issues where we might not have enough test article. And at mm, that sure. point, it comes a it can it can become a roadblock for not only for the study director but for the the overall sponsor's timeline. So, uh, you know, I'd encourage the sponsors if they have any questions about that to feel free to reach out directly to their study directors, and we can certainly help with that to make sure that process is smooth. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. You know, your study director is there to help. There, <laughs> and you know, no offense, sometimes they feel like a hindrance, but they are there to put <laughs> the guidance into practice, and their their job is to make sure you have studies that are quality studies that can actually be submitted and actually get you where you need, which is ultimately market clearance so you can sell your product and make money. And if the study is garbage, then you're not going to get there. So you guys are just real key partners in being helpers for that. And yes, there's lots of questions to answer and there's lots of things that we need to know, but all of them have reasons. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, that's a great message to give to our customers. Sherry, Don, what about? Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Come on. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, um, even before you get to the study director, though, make sure you're discussing when you reach out to your account manager and, and uh, you know, give them, uh, let them know the questions you might have. And, and because when the technical advisor gets uh, the information from your account manager, they're going to quote, they're going to prepare a proposal for you that, uh, to the best of our understanding, um, right. So, you know, if you need help deciding how, you, you know, how your device should be characterized uh, as far as what's the clinical use or, you know, so what testing do you actually need for this device? What kind of claims are you going to be making about this device? And knowing that to ensure that you are quoted the correct testing, because if you can get all of that up front when it gets to the study director, then we can hit the ground running, so to speak, a little bit easier than ha than finding out some of this information at this point. Now we have to maybe stop, get everything requoted for you because maybe it wasn't quite right. So also utilizing right. that upfront process as efficiently as possible will help you overall. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. Thanks for adding that, Teresa. And I know I see, we can see each other. I see Allison shaking her head with chemical characterization, especially. 
oh, the more information you can give about materials, the better. And we've done a couple episodes on chemical characterization. But and and I think, Allison, you know, this is I'm going to sidetrack here, too. But this is a unique role in that you're a study director for chemical characterization, which typically isn't GLP and not GLP, not required to be GLP. But we treat it. You treat it like GLP. You we follow the you follow the process as the owner and the communicator for the chemical characterization studies. Right. And, you know, we try to keep the chemical characterization studies as GLP-like as possible just to ensure, you know, we want we want all the same assurances that, you know, the GLP studies get. You know, we have good good review of the data to make sure, you know, the conduct of the study has been executed according to the protocol. Any deviations have been, you know, addressed appropriately. Amendments are issued in a timely manner if necessary. And it just, it makes, when it's able to to mimic the our biocompatibility offerings, I think that brings peace of mind to sponsors to know that while it might not have that GLP label on the pro- on the protocol in the report, um, it's still being conducted GLP-like within while it's here at NAMSA. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. If I could add to that too, I think I think something sure. that I notice oftentimes is you know there's there's a lot of clout that comes behind that GLP, and I think sponsors can often get stuck in that GLP. You know, this needs to be GLP mindset because it's going to be for submission. Oftentimes when we see something like a failure, you know, in one of one of the studies, the typically the next step would be to try to investigate that failure, right? To do testing to see where exactly that's coming from. And um, I've gotten into into positions where sponsors will want me to run a whole bunch of new studies, all GLP. Um, and mm-hmm. then if those all fail, then you're you're having to submit a whole bunch of failures instead of just one failure. So, you know, our labs at NAMSA are are pretty much even the non-GLP work is being run almost like GLP. The only right. difference is that you don't have me as a study director over there guiding everything, you know, but but everyone, everything in the lab is guided by our test methods. And we, when we're developing our protocols, are also guided by our test methods. So take time to to consider the fact that that maybe something should be investigational and it's that's okay. We're still you're still gonna have the same quality work from the lab. And you can also, you know, there's no reason why you can't still submit that investigational work as supporting evidence for your for your test article biocompatibility. Um, you're just not required to because of GLP, right? So, so if you do some investigational work and it doesn't come out the way that you were expecting, you know, you're not you're not required by the regs to submit that as well. Um, so, that's a great try point. Try not to get stuck in the GLP trap as well. You know, if if you're seeing right. failures. I think Don could probably speak more to this. Yeah, I was going to say Don Don uses information all the time and I I laughed when I talked about submitting, you know, samples in a baggie with a name on it that says product X cuz I've heard those studies those horror stories from Don over We've the years. We've all seen that. At trading. We've all seen it. <laughs> but and you know, branded- the traceability is important for what you do, Don, cuz if there's yeah. no traceability, you can't use that data from 10 years ago if we don't know that it's the same product as today, right? Yeah, and you know, in our in our training uh, courses that we 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 do, like we're doing next week, you know, we purposely built into some of these examples when we're doing training. Again, some some past nightmares, like the example. One of the examples that we use is is the you know the worst name of a test article. You know, when you fill out a sample submission form, don't do it in a way that helps you understand what you're testing because that's going to go what's in front of the regulator, and they're going to see. That you just called something experimental. Uh, that's probably uh, not the best name. <laughs> <not a good laughs> <idea>. <laughs> but you know, and then Brandon 
he mentioned, you know, identification of the test article is very important, you know, making sure that packaging is labeled correctly. And, and it just made me think is like, yeah, the key point there is that the packaging is labeled correctly. Don't put the identification with the Sharpie on your test article because we've all seen <laughs> that happen before, too. And then wonder why your Sido failed. I'm just saying, you know, it. it, it Are you saying but, Sharpie does not give you a positive? Uh, uh, I didn't say that. Sido but, result. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah, I mean, there's all those things that come to everybody's mind. And I know everybody can't see us here, but we're all laughing about this stuff because it is a little comic relief in situations that can be a little bit frustrating, but through cooperation and, and a basic understanding from the sponsor side of things. And, and, you know, that, that makes things go smoother. And I think that's for a sponsor, that's, they want everything to go as smoothly as possible, you know, through this biocomp testing, but it is testing. You know, right. it, it's being done for a reason and for a purpose. And the study director, you know, integral key part to that whole process. So, but again, these guys are more than willing to to help educate sponsors along the way. But certainly the more familiar a sponsor is with what's going to happen can make the process help as well. Excellent. Well, speaking of comic relief, Don, I think you mentioned comic relief. It's that time. We're going to try to be funny. <laughs> Yeah, try, try. <laughs> All right. So we're going to play a little game of two truths and a lie. And we've all, uh, quote unquote, all, um, Don and I each have one. And then we've asked you guys to do a collective two truths and a lie. And for those of you that have not heard this before, we try to do two truths and a lie that are directly related to us working with and around biocompatibility today, trying to keep the theme of being a study director or working with study directors. So Don, do you want to go first? Sure. Oh, and then what we do is we try to guess which one's the lie in case you don't know that part. So two truths and a lie. We try to guess which one's the lie. I think mine's pretty easy, I think, but oh, anyways, okay. I'll start off. Here we go. So when I was a study director, I once hosted a Russian customer and took him to a Mexican restaurant. Seems, <laughs> seems logical, plausible, right? I think Teresa um, and I probably both know this customer. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was a study director at NAMSA, as part of my, my uh, duties at one point, I taught NAMSA associates how to work with Microsoft Office 1997, which included teaching people how to use a mouse. <laughs> Think about that for a little bit. Don't call me old. I'm not calling you old. <laughs> but you are older uh, than me. <laughs> uh, when I was a study director at NAMSA, there were a total of eight of us study directors. Okay, wow. You think this is obvious? Song now. <laughs> you guys have a guess? I know A's true. I'm thinking C is not true. I don't know if there's only eight. What do we have now? Like 40? Something like yeah, that between getting close to that. Yeah. Quite yeah. I, I'm going to say seize the lie. I don't know. What do you guys say? Nope. Yeah. I think, I think maybe it was even less than eight. I don't know. Don, yeah, how long ago was it? Was, <laughs> it was like 1995 ish. So, oh, yeah. That there, the C was the lie. There was four of us. Oh, wow. Not eight. Wow. Four. And now we have 10 times that at We're least. Like I know we have that now. Yeah, we have at least 30 G, uh, biocomp GLP. And then, Allison, how many chemistry? Uh, we've got nine. 
Not no. yeah. So yeah, we're we're in that forty range, and and we're is, still hiring. And we're when we need like forty more in most days. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't think there was as many studies back then as there. Yeah, are no, now, probably not. Our, All our right, I'll go next. Just doubled too, so you know hey. at least <laughs> doubled. You think? I mean, global. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, did we have Did we have the lab in Lyon when you started, Don? No, it was uh well. I can't remember the process acquisition. What? Yeah, I think it was in the process. Yeah. When I started, they were still called Biomatech, but we had them. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't remember it was if it was started already when I started in AMSA or if it was shortly thereafter. I can't remember. Okay. The California facility was definitely built before I started. Right. Right. All right. I'll go next. So mine, because I'm not scientific at all, are usually around marketing or training, as you guys could probably guess. So my first one is when I was in sales, I brought a study director to Atlanta to give a half-day training to one of our clients on GLP. I've traveled to Singapore to give GLP training to authorities with a study director. And then I'm the one that coined QB of GLP for this podcast. (laughs) That one's definitely true. (laughs) I know if B is the lie. Do what? B is the lie, is what we're saying over here. Yeah, because you know where I went instead of Singapore, probably. Do you remember that? I don't know if any of y'all were here. That B is the lie. B is the lie, but Don and I actually spent two weeks in Malaysia training the Malaysian authorities on GLP, and a study director was with us. It was supposed to be Candy, but Candy wasn't able to go. And so we took a study director from Minneapolis, but she's she's not with us anymore, but... Laura did that training with us on GLP in, in Malaysia. So that was fun. It's where Didn't I was really... quoted as saying all mutation is not bad and about got myself into trouble. So, you know. <laughs> <Right>. And then <laughs> we then we started talking about the X-Men and yeah, we did. That, all, yeah. that all mutations are not bad because the X-Men are good. All right. So anyway. <laughs> not all X-Men are good. And not all X-Men are good. Okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Most of them. And that's how the discussion, I think, went. The difference that's exactly between, how the discussion you know, went. Mutants <laughs> and non-mutants in terms of, you know, superheroes, not super... Yeah, yeah, anyways. And then don't start talking about Spider-Man because then we're gone. Yeah. We're down the rabbit hole whether Spider-Man's a mutant or not. So, okay, <laughs> all right. Spiders. It's okay. All right, <laughs> study directors, it's your turn. Stump us. Truths right. and lies. So I keep a copy a pocketbook size copy of the GLP regs on my desk for quick reference and sometimes look at it during my lunch hour. Uh, I once had a sponsor that took me out to both lunch and dinner on the same day. And on a separate occasion, I also had one sponsor order in pizza because we were here till three in the morning working on a study. Okay. Who's got the lie? (laughs) (laughs) One One of those is a lie. One of those is a lie. Okay. One of those is a lie. Oh, you don't get a lunch break. That's the lie. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets lunch breaks as a study director? Okay. Who's got another truth then? <laughs> no, nothing. I have read the entire GLP preamble. Oh, yeah. That better be true. <laughs> <laughs> pre- okay. Preamble, John? So the, the preamble. preamble. I don't know the preamble. <laughs> Okay, so which one's the lie? Uh, I mean, was Brandon worthy of a lunch and a dinner or just a dinner? <laughs> or does Allison not get a lunch? I'm going to say Allison lied because she doesn't get a lunch break. 
So she couldn't read them over her lunch hour. <laughs> I'm saying she never read them on lunch. <laughs> oh, no. That's true. That's true. Okay, so Brandon, <laughs> you weren't there till three o'clock in the morning or they ordered Chinese instead of pizza? No, we were only there till 10, not till three. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> the point being, been, we will go above and beyond been, for our clients if needed. Right. There have been study directors who have stayed until 3 a.m. I'm sure there have. And and to be truthful, our study directors do get lunch hours. I'm just joking. So people don't think that we don't feed you guys because we do feed you. <laughs> we do. We get lunches. <laughs> yes. And you also get vacation. You know, we let you leave the building every now and then as well. So <laughs> that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you guys so much. This has been a fun episode. I think we we somehow managed to to keep six people all uh, all on the podcast. And uh, this is a new record for us. So thank you all for joining us. And we appreciate it. And we know how busy you are. And to take time away from your uh, your busy schedule today and, and spend it with us is, is awesome. And uh, good luck and have fun and keep putting out that good work. We appreciate you. Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.